We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right. Episode six of Lion Legacy coming off the heels of Thon. If you weren't listening last week or you're not a Penn Stater, we are very proud that Thon is the largest student philanthropy in the world, raising a lot of money for pediatric cancer. And this past weekend was a very, very big weekend for Penn State, for Thon, and for the pediatric cancer community. Ross, why don't you reveal that number? I will. Jared, first, always impressed by everyone involved in Thon and constantly amazed that they're able to raise such gobs of money each year, no matter what pandemic years ago, it was, you know, financial crisis back in 08, 09, they were still able to raise a ton of money. So shout out goes out to everyone involved with the Thon effort. 2021 Thon total $10,638,078.62. Awesome. Every penny counts. Love it. Does. It does. Super impressed. It, yeah. It's just awesome. Warms my heart. Congratulations. Uh, great appreciation, as you said, to everyone who contributes, dances, gets behind the mission. Fantastic. One other thing about last week that I want to touch on we had Mallory Brook on. Uh, the meteorologist and weather consultant, and got a note from a listener that said she really appreciated how vulnerable Mallory was in terms of sharing her story and being a little homesick coming to Penn State. And it just reminded me that everyone's journey to Penn State is a little bit different, right? Not only during their time, but actually getting there and feeling comfortable in that environment. And I really appreciated that comment. And I dawned on me that I should bring that up because I think everyone views Penn State as a home, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer for Penn State to become that home. So once again, appreciate Mallory sharing that. Certainly, if there are any other comments that any of the listeners have, you can email us at roar at lionlegacypodcast.com. That's roar as in R-O-A-R, the sound that our Nittany Lion makes as well. Excellent. Jared, thanks for that. So this week, we spoke with Abby Meltzer, not to be confused with our friend and my colleague here, Jared Melzer, without the T. She works for the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. And we thought it was very timely to have somebody on who works for an entity that is so close to the number one issue going on in our world right now, the pandemic, COVID-19. Abby gave us a really good insight into what she does for the foundations for the NIH and how their efforts are going for COVID research and all their uh, events and outreach. And also, she tells us a little bit about her zigzag of a career, which is really cool. I'm not going to give it away, but she'll tell us about her journey and how she made it to where she is today. So with that, enjoy. All right. Let's welcome Abby Meltzer, 2003 Penn State graduate, broadcast journalism and sociology, and currently vice president of communication and events at the Foundation 
for the National Institutes of Health. Before going into the health and science industry, Abby was an associate editorial producer at CNN. And before that, she started her career as a TV anchor and reporter in Zanesville, Ohio. Welcome, Abby, to Lion Legacy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you on as well. And we just got to clear something up right from the start. Your last name is with a T, and my last name is with no T. That is correct. And I'm sure everyone wants to put a T in my name, but I'm sure everyone doesn't take out the T in your name. So you probably have a little bit of the better end of this one. (laughs) That might be the case. Well, great. Let's just jump right in. So I got to say, when someone says National Institutes of Health, or NIH, as you commonly say, I may be a little bit naive. I know it's a very important organization, but I don't really have too much of a clue of what the NIH does. And then on top of that, I didn't even know there was a foundation for the National Institutes of Health. So maybe you can clear this up for us. Sure, sure. And thanks again for inviting me to join you on the podcast. So the NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, is the largest biomedical research agency in the world. It is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, which is a government agency. It is made up of 27 different components, and each of those are called institutes or centers, and they focus on different aspects of medical research. So you may be familiar with hearing about the National Cancer Institute or the National Institute on Mental Health, or more recently, the National Institute on Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That's known as NIAD, and that's where the director is Dr. Anthony Fauci. So that's in a nutshell what the NIH is. I work for the foundation for the National Institutes of Health, and that is a completely separate, not-for-profit organization. We are not a government agency, even though that's a common misperception. And we were created actually by Congress to support the mission of the NIH. And basically, we bolster medical research by providing private sector support Partnerships are really essential when it comes to medical research because each sector could probably do the research on its own. But really, when working together, we can do things bigger, bolder, better, and faster. And so it's really with that need for speed and efficiency that the foundation comes in. And we can work with the biopharmaceutical industry. We work with the FDA, which is the regulatory body. We work with researchers, of course, from the NIH and then also from academic institutions. And so we can all together tackle medical research problems and work on them in consortia or partnership form. Perfect. Thanks for for clearing that up for us. Ross, you probably knew all this because you seem to have a lot of (laughs) random knowledge on these podcasts. Well, I do. I'd like to think I do. But um, when put on the spot in my own head as I was preparing, I realized I probably didn't know all of what Abby just mentioned. If you can help also clear up, what's the difference between the NIH and the CDC? There are two agencies, if that's the right word, that you hear about quite often, especially in the last year and change. Give us like a quick, what's the difference between the two? Sure. So both the NIH and the CDC and even the FDA, I'll bring FDA in, are all sort of sister agencies under the Department of Health and Human Services. So they're each government agencies in their own. 
NIH focuses on the medical or biomedical research. So we're focused on in the lab and we're working on discoveries, breakthrough biomedical discoveries every day. That's what NIH does. CDC is focused on public health, but much more in the sort of epidemiology space. So how viruses might transmit, how they're giving guidance to the public about the mask wearing, about the physical distancing as it relates to COVID. I'm not speaking specifically, but they're giving more of the recommendations to the public as it pertains to public health. Whereas NIH is focused on the research side and in the lab developing discoveries for treatments or vaccines for different diseases and um, conditions. So Abby, in your role as the VP of Communications and Events at the Foundation for the NIH, how do you support the mission? And then secondly, I imagine the events aspect of your role has changed a bit in the last year or so. And to so tell us a bit about maybe what you've done on the events side in this virtual world that we live in. Both great questions. So in my role at the FNIH, I'm really there to oversee all external and internal communications efforts. I am working closely with our program staff to put out press releases, related to our projects, when a project launches or reaches a certain milestone. I'm also overseeing all of our digital media, so our website, our social media efforts, our email marketing, our e-newsletter. And we actually just recently launched our own podcast. So I'm overseeing and producing some of that. In terms of events, I have an in-house events team of six individuals and we work on all the logistics for meetings and events, which range about 60 to 70 events per year. They can be small project team meetings, which might consist of about 15 to 20 individuals, all the way up to really large-scale conferences where we support NIH in some of their really large conferences on Alzheimer's or cancer or things like that. And then we also have an award ceremony each year that the foundation puts on that's about 150 to 200 people, usually in person. So to get to the second part of your question, of course, we were very challenged by COVID, where we had to really shift and pivot from in-person events to virtual events. And for the most part, I think the, the smaller project team meetings could pivot pretty quickly into Zoom-like settings and in the virtual platforms. It was more of like those larger conferences where we either had to decide we're fully canceling or to like really think through the logistics of how are we gonna talk to all these different speakers and vet them and there's technology issues and right there's all sorts of things to contend with when you're putting on a virtual event like that and for example like the fnih chose to not hold an in-person or virtual real event for our award ceremony last year in 2020 we instead created a really robust um, microsite or a website where we were able to honor the awardees for that year excellent and then you know, certainly the health and science are, are the right at the forefront of, of our world right now with COVID-19. What, what have been the focus priorities of the FNIH during the pandemic? So I would say really all things changed for us very rapidly. And back really, I would say start of the pandemic, we were involved. Our leadership was right there at the table with the NIH having discussions pretty early on of how are we going to solve this? This is a huge global problem. How can we solve it? What, 
what can we do to fix this? And so really early on, the NIH got together with the FNIH and a number of leaders from biopharmaceutical companies, from not-for-profits, from other government agencies, and in mid-April launched a very large-scale public-private partnership called ACTIVE, which stands for Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. And ACTIVE is still active right now, no pun intended. What it's focused on is to identify preclinical treatments. And what I mean by that are all potential compounds that could be used as a treatment for COVID. They might be a compound that's like an arthritis treatment, but because arthritis presents itself similarly to COVID, how can we maybe think about repurposing, that's what it's called, repurposing that treatment. And so there was 100 plus different types of treatments to consider. And so what ACTIVE is doing is identifying all of those treatments and figuring out the best ones to take forward to put through clinical trials and figure out how we can get treatments approved then by the FDA for use um, in patients. And so that is still a very active project. Again, very current. We have a number of different protocols that have since launched over time, a number of different treatment options that are in the works. And of course, as there are already two vaccines approved for use, and there are still more vaccine compounds that are being considered. So I think that's really the focus that it's on therapeutics or treatments and vaccines, and really thinking through that that whole sort of ecosystem and how we can best solve the pandemic. But it's a massive partnership. As I mentioned, there's 20 companies, biopharmaceutical companies involved, multiple academic institutions, and there's four main working groups that are involved. And so it's something I'm personally really proud of that the FNIH has been able to be involved in. NIH launched it, but the FNIH is coordinating the effort. And so we're managing the day-to-day of this partnership. That's amazing. And certainly thank you and everyone else involved in all you're doing to speed this up and to hopefully end the the pandemic very soon. So uh, I know that's obviously a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, but I know everyone certainly appreciates that. We certainly could spend a, a lot of time talking about COVID and the pandemic, but there's a lot of great other work that you've done over the years. Can you give us a a few highlights, especially during your time at the FNIH? Sure. So as I mentioned, FNIH supports the NIH and all of its institutes and centers. So we have the pleasure of working on a variety of different health challenges and topics, which actually makes my job really fun because we're not just focused on one specific disease area, but I'm able to learn myself about a lot of different diseases, disorders. And so I would say some of our other key programs that we've worked on, we have a really large partnership in cancer and immunotherapy, one in Alzheimer's disease, actually a number in Alzheimer's disease, and really exciting new sort of work being done in that area and in that space. We actually launched a a new partnership just last year in schizophrenia, which was the first of its kind looking at that sort of psychosis. And um, it's aiming to identify early stages and risk of predicting the likelihood of, of progressing to psychosis. And so that's really an interesting partnership in the mental health space. And I also really enjoy working on the awards, recognizing up-and-coming scientists that are making really interesting discoveries. 
So I, in my role, get to work on telling their stories and how their work has implications in the scientific field, but also for patients and everyday people. So I really find that to be a real passion in my job is to, to work on the storytelling and to work with those up and coming scientists. Abby, we're going to take you back in time a little bit. So we focused so far on your work in the last few years at the FNIH. But Jared mentioned in, in the intro that you didn't start your career in the health and science world. So t- tell us a little bit about your journey before the FNIH. So my journey is a bit non-traditional, I'll just say. I did leave Penn State focused on a career in broadcast journalism. And I remember sending out my resume tape back then. It was VHS, <laughs> dating myself, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> back Love then it. it was a tape. And I was literally willing to go anywhere in the U.S. I was this young, hungry. I I really wanted to be on camera as a reporter. I, t- I wanted to take all those skills that I had just learned at Penn State and put it to use. And so I remember my first job was at a, this small, really small market. It was an NBC affiliate, WHIZ TV in Zanesville, Ohio. And for those of you that don't know, Zanesville is an hour southeast of Columbus, which let me tell you, being a Penn State fan and high territory was not fun. But anyway, I pushed through and it was actually a Penn State grad that helped me land that job. A friend of a friend had been working there in the sports division. And so he helped me push my resume tape to the top of the news director's pile. And lo and behold, he called and offered me a job. And so that was awesome. I spent two years in Zanesville, a little give or take. And that was definitely a really interesting place to work. I had ne- I had grew up outside DC and never really been to a really small town, which Zanesville is a really small town. And it was really eye-opening and a good experience work-wise. I learned a lot as a professional there. And I became the weekend anchor and weekday reporter. So I was mostly a general assignment reporter, although Shortly after I started, I noticed they didn't have a health reporter. And so my sort of like passion for health started there where I really wanted to help tell stories about your health because it's like one thing that affects absolutely everybody. I started a health tips segment that was like weekly where I got to go to the hospital and talk to different professionals there. And then I covered all sorts of stories. I'm talking court trials, fatal car accidents. That was the first time I ever saw a dead body. It was really just put you right in there, let you learn and tell the news. But that's what being a local TV news reporter is like. You just have to work your way through and learn all the different stories. And I covered hard news, but then I also covered like a new store is opening. I always wanted to dig for what the interesting aspect of the story could be. So that I would say was Zanesville. And I I made a really tough decision to leave being on air, but I started to just think really hard that this was not necessarily the career that I really wanted. I realized quickly I was going to have to move all across the country, market to market, to work my way up. And I just was like, I don't know if I have that in me to be that far from my family. And just, I don't know, I hit a point where I just didn't want to do that. So I decided to give up being on air, but still wanted to be in TV. And that's what brought me to CNN. And so I applied for a news assistant position at CNN and took that 
in the, in the DC Bureau and moved back to my hometown area. And that to me was a great move. I learned a ton. And being a news assistant, you got to do a lot of different interesting jobs. I started out guest greeting. That was the role where you're greeting all of the different kind of famous guests that come on CNN. I met everyone from, let's see, Jimmy Carter to Sheryl Crow to all just amazing, interesting people. Of course, a lot of different political folks. And so that was like an eye-opening role for me in terms of being not on camera, but behind the scenes about how TV news also really works at a major network. And so that was, I would say, just a really rewarding experience. But after a while, I really started noticing that it was depressing, particularly at a 24-hour news network. It, it didn't feel right to me, like I wasn't covering the right type of stories. And it was just the whole, like, it bleeds, it leads, like that kind of scenario. And a turning point for me was actually the Virginia Tech shootings. So I had been promoted to a um, guest producer at that time, or like a guest booker, it's called. When the first, like, announcement came out that there was a shooting at Virginia Tech, I literally always had to have my go bag packed. And they were like, Abby, go. And I had to get in my car and drive to Virginia Tech. I was the first booker for CNN on the ground there. I spent four days. I barely slept. It was just horrific to be on campus and to have these people go through this trauma. And basically, I was the one saying, do you want to come on CNN and tell me your story? To me, that was it. I, that was the real aha moment where I'm like, I've got to get out. I can't, I don't want to do this. I was practically in tears listening to these people who lost their friends, who saw them got shot. I was like, I'm not, this isn't for me. So even after being in everything I saw in Zanesville, I just said, I think I need to make a big career move here and get out of TV news. So long story short, I, I really started to think strategically, what is my passion? What do I really like to do? And to me, I kept coming back to health. I had even worked with some of the health reporters at CNN when I was there because I was so interested in how they covered health at a more national level. And so I said, I could go into PR or work for a not-for-profit related to health. And that's when I came across this position for a communications officer at the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies, which I had, to be honest, never heard of at the time, but they're quite prestigious. And it's a not, also a not-for-profit organization. I'll maybe talk later about the similarities between that and FNIH, but they're both congressionally um, chartered not-for-profit organizations. And Institute of Medicine was a fabulous place to learn and work and, and learn at a different level about communications that was not being on air or even being behind the scenes of a news agency, but really working more on the content and how to disseminate the messages of this great organization. So I would say that was really my journey in a nutshell. And then from Institute of Medicine, where I spent about seven and a half years, I, I came to the FNIH. Very cool. That's an amazing journey. You know, I think the best paths are those that are non-traditional at at least the most interesting to hear about. So good for you. I have to mention one sidebar and Jared's going to roll his eyes at me because he's going to say, how do you know this? When I saw that you were in Zanesville, I thought of that story, which one I'm going to mention. Yep. Okay. Do. You, yep. And I had to see if you were there, which this happens afterwards. So for the listeners, 
Zanesville, Ohio in 2011. I read this story in Rolling Stone years ago after it happens. 2011, some guy owns all this wildlife and they got loose. Like I'm talking tigers, lions, baboons. I, I don't even know what, like vicious giraffes. Yeah. And they <laughs> got out of this person's compound yep. and it was like a whole to do because they had to clear up the situation the police and animal control whatever so i thought of that story which happened after you left zanesville but that's just a pretty why just that story imprinted in my mind when i heard that town <laughs> yep and that it, it's almost like people that had never heard of zanesville after that story broke were like oh, what else is in zanesville? that's yeah. right russ there's a lot of random knowledge in that head of yours oh yes oh yes so Abby, also one more thing on the broadcast side of your career. Did you have a particular reporter or anchor that you really admired when you were growing up that kind of pushed you in that direction, at least as you were getting into uh, college? That is actually a really good question. I would say there were a number of people that I admired. I grew up in the D.C. area. So for me, there was an anchor, Maureen Bunyan. She has since re retired, but she was a longtime anchor in DC that I always admired her sort of style of reporting and appreciated that when I was a bit older, I would say even starting to really want to go into broadcast journalism, I admired Natalie Morales of the Today Show, um, still follow her career. And she's just someone that I thought was a great storyteller. Also along those lines, Barbara Walters an icon in the field. And so I think she's also someone I would say I admired. Got to ask as well. We had Mallory Brooke on last week who does some TV meteorology work. And we asked her about TV funny bloopers. You have any that you can share from Zanesville? Let's see. I don't know about bloopers per se, although when you work at a place called WHIZ, there's a lot of laughter. I would just say, I don't know. It was a great place where we learned how to put together all the stories ourselves. I will tell you a surreal moment for me was one time I was in the local Walmart, just like shopping and some random person came up to me and he was like, oh, you tell the news, you tell the news. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. So that was just something that like was such a weird feeling and sort of story. So not really a blooper, but a random story that stuck with me all these years. And then when you went to CNN, you were working with an icon like Wolf Blitzer. Tell us what that was like. So yes, Wolf Blitzer, I have to say, is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. He is so kind uh, to all of the staff, everyone who works for him. And I'm talking not just the executive producer or any of the producers on the show. When I was working with him, I was a news assistant still. So I was like running scripts out to him, running the teleprompter for him. But after every show, he would thank the lighting crew. He would thank the photographers. He would thank every single person in the studio. And that I'm not making up. He is just that genuine of a person. So I think he's just one of the, the icons in TV. And I have nothing but good things to say about working with him. Do you feel like there would have been any other situation that would have kept you in, on the broadcast side a little longer? Or do you feel like at some point it would have just run its course and you would have moved on as it was? It's funny. People often ask, 
would you ever go back? What, you know, what was it that, you know, could have kept you? So that's a common question. I would say the adrenaline moments of working on an election night, something like that, where you feel like you were literally a part of history. You are watching it unfold in front of you. But I think it didn't jive with the plan and balance I wanted for my life. I'm married now. I have two kids. I feel like it would have been really hard to have the life that I have now in TV. And so I just realized that a while ago. I'm not saying that people can't do it and they they do have great lives and can have it both ways. I just think for me personally, what I was looking for, the time to leave felt right and I haven't really regretted it. So I think that there were certainly exciting moments, but I don't, I just don't think that I could go back. Fair enough. So you, you know, all of your different roles that you've told us about today, leverage your communication and your storytelling skills. And, and that seems to be the common thread that, that ties it all together for you. What are some of the similarities across the roles that you've had? Sure. I think I would say communicating about health and medicine has been really the similarity in all the roles. In every way, I found a way to communicate about the messages of health or medicine. And at the core of really all of my roles has been storytelling. Even at CNN, as a guest producer, I had to pre-interview every guest before I put them on the air. And so, again, that's a reporter skill of teasing out that information and I am an innately curious person. I just always have been. I think that's what led me to go into reporting or broadcast journalism in the first place. I have also a passion for learning about people, which is why I would double majored in sociology, which is the study of people. I'm the type of person that goes on a train, sits on an airplane when I'm traveling by myself, and I can guarantee you, I will get the person next to me to talk to me and I will know <laughs> interesting things about them. It happens literally every time I travel. So it's just part of who I am. And I think that then once I have that information after I've interviewed them, I need to share it. I need to tell people those stories and I'll go home and I'll tell my husband about it or I'll tell a friend about, oh my God, you're never going to guess who I met on the airplane or whatever. And so throughout each one of my roles, that storytelling skill was ever present. There's one thing about CNN, actually, one story that stands out probably the most from my time there. Shortly after I started, I would say maybe six months in, they, they had just started experimenting by having the news assistants, which again are like really entry-level positions, work overnight shifts. And I'm talking like 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., so real odd hours. And hardly anybody is there at all. There's some people from like 10 to midnight, but then from like midnight to 7 a.m., you're pretty much by yourself, or till six, you're by yourself. And I'll never forget one night, it was just me and the security guard. And <laughs> this phone call rang, and it was news to tell me that. President Gerald Ford died. And when a U.S. president passes away, it is a really big deal, particularly for the network news. You have to be on the air first with that breaking news. And I was literally by myself and like this young <laughs> person. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is the first thing I need to do? But one thing I'll share that you may not know about network news 
is there is something called pool. So each of the networks are a considered pool for when a, a president death and CNN happened to be pool, which is how we knew about it first. And so your first duty is to notify everyone else in the pool, which is all of the other major networks. So there is in every newsroom of the major networks, a phone that is labeled the pool phone, and you have to pick that up. It literally automatically dials all the other pool networks. And that was the one piece of training that I remembered right away, call the pool phone. And then after that, I remember rushing down to this tape library and getting a Larry King live tape. It was like the last interview that Gerald Ford had done, but while he was alive, I had to put that on the air. I had to feed that down to Atlanta. It was one of those adrenaline rush moments. Like I've never had in my life. And it was because I was like, Oh my God, this is all falling on me. Like <laughs> a president died and I have to notify people. And so anyway, talk about the experiences that will really shape your life. I mean, that was one of those stories that I will never forget. That's a cool story. Good thing you picked up that pool phone as well. <laughs> Otherwise, CNN, I guess, would have got the exclusive, right? Yes. I don't know. I don't think anyone's allowed to have an exclusive on something like that. But yes, <laughs> we did have to share the news with the others. Very true. Very. I true. can only imagine you're frantic. Who do, what do I do? Who do I tell? Where do I go? <laughs> I remember having to wake up the bureau chief. This all happened, by the way, at two in the morning. Uh -huh. So I well, should have because of course it did. Like, this is, of course, not going to happen at a normal business hour. <laughs> so I'm having to wake people up. Have And then all of a sudden, everyone else was coming in and the newsroom was like a buzz. And it was by 730. It was like mayhem. Very cool story. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. So we are now going to transition to the Lions Den, which is a segment dedicated to your time at Penn State. All right, Abby, the first question that we like to ask our guests is how do you feel that Penn State has prepared you for this great career that you've told us about today? I would say Penn State definitely pro provided me with the foundation to be successful in every one of my roles. I recall feeling extremely well prepared coming out of Penn State to have my first job, I had a number of really good internships, and I remember, again, the College of Communications was great at helping um, me secure those internships. And then, again, having that experience on my resume really just helped secure the first job out of school. I remember in particular that the broadcast program, which I'm sure is even far greater than it was when I was there in 2003, but um, they really taught us how to both write, shoot, edit, I mean, everything, not every school I think does that. And that was maybe a little bit of an edge that Penn Staters had going into the field as we knew how to do everything. So I could go to a, a station like Zanesville and I could shoot and edit and do everything myself if I had to. One other thing just to note, I think there were some classes actually outside of my journalism classes that stuck out. I don't know if either of you took Frank Clemente's sociology class, but that was just one that it taught you about life. He gave you his like rules for life. And it's a class I'll never forget. And I think a lot of Penn Staters who were fortunate enough to take that class that really helped prepare them for just life in general, but also their career. I would place money that if we did a poll of Penn Staters, what their favorite class was during Professor Clemente's time at the university, it, he, it would like by far would win. Yep. Agreed. I didn't take that class, which now I feel like 
I really missed out on that one. Yeah, I feel <laughs> like was- he could do a TED Talk or he could, you know, he, it was just, it felt like a TED Talk every day. It was amazing. Is he still there? Do we know? He retired a few years back. Jared, we need to find him. I think we need to get him on the, on the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bring him on. Bring him on. Special edition. So next question is usually the toughest. Favorite memory at Penn State? Oh. I was dreading this question because I know you asked it to others. I think it's going to be really hard to pick one. I think I have two that stand out the most from freshman year, actually. The first was my Penn State football experience. Hands down, I think I'll never forget that game. I remember everything about that day. I remember seeing people tailgating for the first time. I just, the crowd was electric. It felt like no no sports experience I had ever had before. And I just, it made me go to every home game ever since that experience. And I think it was just, I don't know. It it was like love at first sight for me in, in college football. It really was. My husband and I both are big college football fans. He went to USC, which we don't speak about those Rose Bowls in my house, but but we both love college football. And I think my love started in that first home game freshman year. LeVar Arrington was there and it was amazing. Anyway, so I would say the second was actually a feeling or a moment freshman year, the last day of school, my parents had come to pick me up to take me home for that summer. And I remember feeling, what do you mean I have to go home? This is my home now. This is my life. I don't want to leave my friends. And that to me was when I first really felt like something was really special at Penn State. And it I remember that feeling I had every other year in the summer. And it was only worse on graduation day. So It just was a memory that I have that I'll never forget. So you mentioned your freshman year. So let's go back a little bit just before your freshman year. Let's say you were on an airplane. You mentioned you like to speak with strangers on the airplane. You happen to be sitting next to 18-year-old version of Abby who's about to enter Penn State. What advice do you share with her? Don't talk to strangers on the airplane. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell her that studying is important, but it's not everything that you should have fun and live it up because you're never going to get that time back in your life. And those four years were the best four years of my life. And I think that I would also tell her to do as many outside classroom activities as I could that my time allowed to still take care of my studies. Because I think the more you get involved at Penn State, the more of a rich experience you have there. Great answer there. Love it. Along the advice lines as well, when you're in Maryland these days and someone says, hey, I'm considering Penn State and a few other colleges, what do you say to convince them why they should choose University Park? I tell them a thousand percent, you, sh- you need to go to Penn State. I tell them that The best thing about Penn State is that there is something there for everybody, that you could join a sport or a club sport. There's like literally a club for everything at Penn State. So you can invent a club if there is not one that exists, but I guarantee you there probably is something there for you. I think you can join a sorority or a fraternity. I think you can find yourself in a school 
I, I remember getting a lot like, how did you like Penn State? Wasn't it huge? And I remember saying, it's as big as you want to make it. It's great to have really large classes or 110,000 people in the stadium when you go to a football game. But I also had like very personal experiences with professors and you can have really small classes too. So I think it's the experience is what you make of it. And I would say that the network is also huge. You'd be hard pressed to find an alumni network as strong as the Penn State one. I'd challenge you to find a school that has more spirit than Penn State. I can't tell you how many times I walk around and still, even in Maryland, see people wearing Penn State gear or have it on their car, license plate, whatever. And they're just so spirited and it, it reaches far beyond the campus. So I think it's just one of those really special places and not every school like it. How do you feel most connected to the university these days? So I actually had not been back on campus for a really long time and went back in 2019, fall of 2019, with a couple of girlfriends of mine, sorority sisters, shout out to Alpha Phi. And so we went back on a non-football weekend because we needed to find a place to stay. And we walked the campus and it was like electrifying. It was, I, I found it exhilarating. I had not been back in so long, but we had so much fun reminiscing and walking around. I mean, so much has changed since we had been there, but we also were like, oh, remember when this happened? And it was just, it's such a great um, way to connect. So I would say I've got to go back again soon. We just need to wait for COVID to be over. But yeah, I want, I would love to find ways to actually stay more connected. I'm happy to talk to any student that is considering Penn State or even current students who are looking for jobs. Um, happy to talk through people that have non-traditional careers coming out of Penn State. After the pandemic, Every alumni is going to be <laughs> back at Penn State. It's just going to be a, right. a swarm. They won't know what to do. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I really want to bring my kids. I really want them to see an experience. Of course, they've had the Penn State cheerleader outfit or gotten T-shirts over the years, but I want them to experience it for themselves. As they should. <laughs> hey, this has been an amazing time. First, your journey is awesome in front of the camera, behind the camera, transitioning to health and science and what you're doing today, but also a great deal of appreciation for what you and your teams are doing in terms of the pandemic and other health issues that you're trying to combat and, and provide cures for. So thanks for sharing that with us. We certainly wish you a lot of success. I look forward to keeping in touch with you and seeing what's next in your career, both uh, professionally as, as well as personally. Sounds great. Thank you. And we always end with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruder production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.